coming up on this week's podcast. Now you may say, Justin, are you saying that God judged America on September 11th? Is that what you're trying to say? You're saying that God whispered in the ears of uh, extremist Muslim terrorists to fly planes and buildings and kill innocent people? I'm saying he didn't have to. They were going to do it anyway. And I wonder, I just wonder, did God move his hand of mercy from us and, and moved his hand that would protect us? Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Justin Hibbard with today's message. Well, we're turning our attention to judges, and we have spent a few, uh, few weeks on different judges, but I figured we'd start this morning with this. You know a long sermon is coming when? <laughs> this is a good preface, I suppose. You know a long sermon is coming when? You're asked to bring a covered dish to share during the sermon. The bulletin announces that the longer the sermon goes, the more frequent flyer miles you'll earn. All the clocks in the sanctuary are missing, and you're asked to surrender watches at the door. I don't know if the doorkeepers took care of that today, but... The ushers hand out snacks and cold drinks during the sermon. Now that, would, now, that would be nice, right? Like going through the aisle, you know, taking your order, ginger ale and peanuts, right? The sermon notes are carried in by seven ushers. Let's see. The pastor is hooked up to an intravenous co- coffee line. Sometimes I feel that way. Uh, the ushers ask if you'll need overnight accommodations and a wake-up call. An ambulance crew is standing by. Your kids ask if it's still Sunday. <laughs> and number 10, there are coffee pots on the communion table, right? Well, we are taking a look at the, the story of Judges, and I, I don't think it'll be that long. Um, this, is a, this is a tough story. We've looked at different Judges. We've looked at Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah, and, and this is the story of Abimelech. And I should preface this by saying Abimelech is not a judge. You might say, well, why in the world are we studying a judge, judges and we're not studying a judge? Well, there's a really good story here. Uh, actually, it's a really bad story, but it's good for us to understand. You know, and I'm reading this story. It's just a tough, tough story. You know, in liturgical ch- churches, how the, the reader will read the story and, and will say the word of the Lord and everyone will respond, thanks be to God. I would think after this story, you would say, that's a terrible story. That seems like that would be the appropriate response here. But we're glad to have it because it does teach us some valuable lessons, some tough lessons. But, um, so let's turn, if you would, to Judges chapter 8. We're going to look again at the Brick Testament, which is my favorite illustrated version of the Bible in Lego form. <laughs> and we're going to begin at the end of Gideon's life, at the end of Gideon's life. In Judges 8.33, it says, After Gideon died, again the Israelites prostituted themselves to the Baals, making Baal Bareth their god. They forgot Yahweh, who had rescued them from their enemies, and they did not show gratitude to Gideon's family after all the good things he had done for them. Gideon's son Abimelech went to the leading men of Shechem and said, Which is better, to have seventy of Gideon's sons ruling over you or one? Remember, I am your flesh 
and blood. Now, just as a little backup to this, Gideon had 70 sons. We don't know how many daughters he had. 70 sons because he had many wives and many concubines. And Abimelech is one of those sons. All right? So a lot of half-brothers here. In Judges 9, chapter, or verse 3 and 4, it says, Then the leading men of Shechem were inclined to support Abimelech, saying, He is our relative. And they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Bareth. And you might say, well, why aren't the other brothers part of the city of Shechem? Why, aren't they, why don't they consider themselves relatives? Well, probably because Gideon had wives scattered throughout the country. And this is, this is common even today in some countries. My wife and I in 2005 or 2006 went to Morocco to visit uh, missionary friends. And um, one evening we had the privilege of spending it with uh, a woman and her two sons. I think it was two sons. And she fed us a, a wonderful dinner. And the missionaries explained to us that her husband was gone and would leave at various times without announcing where he was going or when he would be coming back because he was going off to visit his other wives. And, and when, just before we got there, there was a, a revolutionary law for women's rights that was passed there in Morocco. You know what it was? It was that if a man wanted to marry another additional spouse, he had to notify his previous spouses, right? Not ask their permission, just to notify them and say, hey, getting married, you know, I'll be back every now and then, right? So... It's, chances are that Gideon is in the same boat, where he's, got son, where he's got families spread out throughout the country. In verse 4, it says, Abimelech used the silver to hire some worthless, reckless adventurers to follow him. And then he went to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his 70 brothers, Gideon's sons, all on the same stone. Only Jothan, the youngest son, escaped by hiding. So here's this guy, this ruthless, ruthless guy that he, he's, he wants to, to lead. And he says, okay, well, I'm going to be the leader. And what's the first thing he does? He cuts off, he kills all of Gideon's other sons. In chapter 9, verse 6, it says, The leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo then gathered at the oak by the pillar in Shechem and made Abimelech king. So Abimelech is actually the first king of Israel. It's not Saul, it's actually Abimelech. In verse 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. Now there's two lessons that I want to to focus on today. And the first lesson is the problem of idolatry. The problem of idolatry. You might say, well, what does idolatry have to do with the story? Well, it has everything to do with the story. As we've been talking about this series, we've made a number of mentions of Joshua. Remember, at the end of Joshua's life, during the campaign... Joshua was instructed to go through Israel because that was the land that God had given them. And he was, he was supposed to expel all of the other people out of Israel. And so at the end of Joshua's life, that had not been totally accomplished. And Joshua says to the people, he says, you have to continue following this work. Because what's going to happen if you don't? What's going to happen is you're going to, be, you're going to become adopting their way of life. You're going to adopt their culture. You're going to adopt them as wives. They're going to become your wives. You're going to intermarry with them. And then you're going to adopt their religion. And before long, that's exactly what happened. And so here we have uh, the first instance of what? We have the first instance of a king. And if you recall, Israel was a theocracy. God was in charge. Though he appointed priests 
and prophets and, and other leaders, he never had this system of a monarchy, a system of kingship. But it's Abimelech who becomes the first king. And later, he, later we see Saul. Now, Abimelech's sort of a self-appointed king. Saul is more of an anointed king from the hand of Samuel. But if you look back in chapter 8, verse 22, this is not the first talk of wanting a king. It's the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you rescued us from the Midianites. So all of a sudden, here these guys are saying to Gideon, Gideon, you rule over us, you, you rule over us. And what does Gideon say? Gideon says, neither I nor my son will rule over you. God, Yahweh, will rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. So, so, what, so what we have is we have uh, all the people all of a sudden want a king. And where do they get this idea of a king? They get this idea of a king because the people around them have the system of kings. All right? They have the system of kings. And, and so Abimelech, he wants to become king. He knows that the people want to have a king. He, he, he sees Gideon say, no, no, I don't want to be king. But he says, I, I'm going to be king. Now, remember, remember the, the son, Jotham. Remember the kid, the kid who escaped, right? He escaped, he escaped the hands of Abimelech and his ruthless men. And Jotham goes up. And he, he begins to give this parable to the people. He stands on a mountain, and we see this in verse 7 of chapter 9. He says, he, he gives this story. He says, now when they, when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? And then the trees said to the fig tree, you come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the other trees? And then the tree said to the vine, you come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? And finally, all the trees said to the bramble, You come reign over us. Or maybe you have tumbleweed as your version. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. It's really a sort of an ingenious parable that he's telling because he's telling the story of Gideon and some of the others. Gideon said, look, I'm not going to rule over you. I have work to do. He's a leader and he understands the difference between leadership and hierarchy. He's not in there. God doesn't want someone to rule over them. He, God wants to rule over them. He wants people to be leaders and Gideon is an example of a leader, but he isn't in the business of ruling over people. And sometimes, you know, we, we, we make mistakes of we want people to rule over us. No, that's not what we should want. We, we, we should want good leaders, godly leaders, but not people to dictate to us and rule over us. I was thinking about this. Carl made a mention of this in the, in the problem of idolatry and how much of a problem it was for the Israelites depicted here as Lego men bowing to various creatures. Um, but, you know, we do this all the time. There's a song by Nicole Nordman that says, everybody's worshiping something 
I choose you. And the truth is we all, we all worship something. We all have something. And how slippery it is that idolatry comes into our homes and that we make idols out of various things. It was interesting. I think about this a lot in, in regards to church leadership. And um, because I was driving around with Pastor Gary in Southern California back in last January. And it was like he was, as we were driving, he's pointing out all these awesome mega churches who are, who are run by uh, very, very famous pastors. And he's like, oh, that's so-and-so's church, and that's so-and-so's church, and that's so-and-so's church. And I began thinking, like, is, is this what church is supposed to be about? Is this supposed to be identified as so-and-so's church? And I understand that there are leaders, and leaders make profound influences, and, 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 and sometimes people are drawn to various leaders. And I understand uh, following your rabbi and things like that, but I think sometimes we make idols out of ministers, idols out of pastors. Idols, as Carl mentioned last week, we, we sort of replace God with them, and that's not the way it's supposed to be at all. God wants to be the leader. He wants to have the authority in our lives. And though he places leaders there, it's that fine line, that gray area, oftentimes, that we begin taking up various idols. And we have to guard ourselves against that. And God hates idolatry. And these people, these Israelites, they adopted the ways of the world. They they were content with letting the people live around them, intermarrying with them, grabbing their ways of life. And pretty soon they grabbed not only their gods, not only their women, but everything about them they began adopting. Let's continue with the story. In verse 23 it says, Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. He did this so the crime against Gideon's 70 sons should be avenged. So what we have now in the story is the people of Shechem who anointed uh, Abimelech as king, paid him money. Now, all of a sudden, there's some enmity between them. There's a, there's a spirit, an evil spirit, that is stirring up trouble between these two groups. And we'll see how that plays out. And the leaders of Shechem betrayed Abimelech. Gaul, son of Ebed, came to Shechem with his brothers, and the leaders transferred their allegiance to him. They cursed Abimelech, and Gaul said, Who is Abimelech, that we should be his slaves? If only this people were under my command, I would get rid of him. So all of a sudden we have a new allegiance, a new alliance. A civil war is about to break out. And when Zebel, the governor of the city, heard what Gaul had said, he was furious and sent messengers to Abimelech in Arumah. And they said, Gaul and his brothers have come to Shechem and are inciting the city to revolt. And when Gaul came out and stood at the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and his troops rose from their hiding places. So Gaul and the leaders of Shechem went out to fight Abimelech. Many of his men fell wounded or dead, and Gaul ran away as Abimelech pursued them all the way up to the city gate. The next day, the people of Shechem came out into the field, and Abimelech heard of this, and he saw the people coming out of the city. He attacked and blocked the entrance of the city gate, And then he struck down all the people in the field. Abimelech fought against the city all that day. And when he captured it, he killed all the people inside. He destroyed the city and sowed it with salt. I mean, really great story, right? (laughs) And it gets worse, too. And when the people of the Tower of Shechem heard about this, they hid in the inner chamber of the Temple of of El Barith. And when Abimelech heard that all the people were gathered there, 
he and his men took branches and piled them against the inner chamber and set it on fire. And so all the people of the Tower of Shechem died too, about a thousand men and women. And Abimelech's not done. He's done this work. He's captured this city. He's destroyed these people. He's burned it to the ground. And then he goes on, and he went to Thebes and captured it. And the center of the city was a fortified tower, and all the men and women of the city, along with the city's leaders, fled to it. They locked themselves inside and climbed up onto the roof of the tower. Abimelech reached the tower and approached the entrance to set it on fire. But then a woman threw down a, a, a millstone. It landed on Abimelech's head and broke his skull. He hastily called out to the young man who carried his armor, Draw your sword and kill me, so that they won't say of me a woman killed him. So the young man stabbed him, and he died. And when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they all went home. The word of the Lord. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, this is really a tough, tough story. This is terrible. And, and at the end, it's not like Gideon, it's not like Jephthah, it's not like Samson, where the, at the end there's this sort of relief, there's this triumph, that somebody wins. No, these two sides both lose. They both lose. There's no joy. These people don't run out and celebrate. They're probably too busy burying their dead or rebuilding their cities or wondering how they're going to continue with their life that Abimelech burned to the ground. This is the problem of idolatry. And the second point that I want to make, and I apologize because I know it's Thanksgiving and we like lighthearted sermons and everything, but the second point and the last point I want to make is the severity of God's judgment. The severity of God's judgment. We don't like to talk about God's judgment, do we? We don't like to talk about God's wrath. We'd much rather talk about God's goodness and his grace and his love towards us. It was funny, I was watching this movie. It's a 1960s uh, Disney movie called uh, Pollyanna. You guys familiar with this movie? There's a great scene in it. It's a six-minute scene that takes place in a church. You know what I'm talking about? And, and the pastor gets up, and it's this old, you know, old-school, like, very high pulpit. He's wearing, you know, very New England-type attire. And he, and he gets up there, and he takes this deep breath. And then he goes, death comes unexpectedly. And for five minutes, I kid you not, for, it's only a five-minute sermon. He's much less winded than I am. And for five minutes, he goes on and on and on about God's wrath. He just goes on. And for five minutes, you watch the whole sermon from beginning to end. And then they cut away at scenes of people, like, sweating and people, like, biting their nails and, like, you know, <laughs> shivering. And they're so afraid. And afterwards, there's talk. They get together, and there's talk about I hate Sundays. I hate going to church. It always gives me ulcers. It makes me a bet. You know, I, I feel worse about myself than when I went in. And we don't let, you know, we've moved from sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? The John, great Jonathan Edwards sermon. And we've moved towards more talking about God's loving side, right? But sometimes we forget that God has a real and a severe side of justice and judgment. He craves, he wants, he needs we need to have justice. We need to have justice. Though he is a loving and merciful God, we can't forget that there is a side of justice to him. Well, what is Israel's judgment? How does God give Israel judgment here? Does he work in the heart of Abimelech? Does he move Abimelech to go and torture these people? Does he move in, the, in, the, in that woman who drops the millstone off the tower? To kill Abimelech? How does God move here in this story? Where is God? And I think the answer comes in Judges chapter 10, verse 10. 
this is, this is the beginning of the story that Carl shared last week. And it begins with Israel in, in captivity. And it tells us because they were worshiping all sorts of idols. Again, back to idolatry. They're involved in all sorts of idols. In Judges chapter 10, verse 10, it says, Then the Israelites cried out to, to Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and worshiping the Baals. And God said to the Israelites, Did I not rescue you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonites, the Amalekites, and the Midianites? And then some guy here says, Don't forget the Aramites, the Moabites, and the Canaanites. (laughs) But since you have abandoned me and worshipped other gods, I will no longer rescue you. Go cry to the gods you have chosen and let them rescue you from your trouble. What does God say? Hey, you were so convinced on having idols, you were so convinced on this, that, you know what, why don't you go complain to your idols that you're in trouble? See what they'll do to you. I love, I love that story with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You know, and he, Elijah begins to taunt the prophets of Baal. He says, well, maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe he's, you know, maybe he's down for a nap. Maybe he's, he's out for lunch. He begins talking. God says, look, if you're so convinced on serving these false gods, let them save you. Going back to the, the problem of idolatry, the men, uh, the people of Israel wanted that king so bad. God gave them exactly what they wanted. When, when the people come to Samuel and say, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king, right before Saul's anointed, Samuel goes to, to the Lord and says, God, they've rejected me. And God says, no, it's not you they've rejected, Samuel. They've rejected me. They are trying to replace me. And so God gives Israel exactly what they wanted. Sometimes God gives us the rulers that we deserve, the rulers that we crave so much for. And in this case, what does God do? God removes his hand of mercy on Israel. He removes his hand of mercy on Israel. Romans 1. Romans 1 is a, a wonderful book, Romans, the book of Romans, a wonderful book, it's a theologically power-punched book from the pen of Paul. And he begins his letter after all the ple- pleasantries are over, after saying, you know, I, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, to the, to the elect in Rome and so forth. He begins his theological statement that lasts for a number of chapters with this phrase right here. In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. How would you like to get a letter from from your friend? And that's how it starts off. The wrath of God is being revealed. Not a really fun way to begin a theological discussion. But what is the wrath of God? How is the wrath of God being revealed? Ten verses later, Paul explains in verse 28, So God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what, not, what ought not to be done. In other words, God removed his hand of mercy. He said, you know what? You want that so bad, have it. He doesn't need, and sometimes doesn't need to be involved with the judgment. He just lets nature take its course. And we do a fine job on our own. This is, this is a, a tough statement. Again, I apologize. It's not the most uplifting, uplifting words this morning. But this story is a, is a really tough story and, a, and a, a needful reminder of God's judgment. 
of what God wants from us. He wants obedience. I think if we were, I was thinking about this, I was thinking, if I were living in, this, in the time of Abimelech, and, and maybe even in the time of Judges, and I'm sure there were some politicians there and some policymakers uh, like we have in Washington, and I would ask them, you know, aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid that what you're doing here is going to lead to your demise? You know, the Lord gave you very specific instructions on what to do in the land of Israel, and you are not following any of it. Aren't you afraid? And I, I bet you they would answer it like this. You know, Justin, we live in a pluralistic society. We are involved with, uh, there's a number of people from various races that live here. And in an effort to promote peace and prosperity, it's important for us to embrace those other cultures and allow them to practice their various religions. I think you can understand where I'm going with this. I think the problem is there's really two issues. Number one, God hates idolatry. He hates false religion. You just can't. You can't read scripture and say, oh, God appreciates false religion or God overlooks idolatry. He does not. And so, he, so if God is going, and God will punish false idols, he will punish those who, who uh, participate in, in false religion. And so if Israel's in the middle of it, if they're intertwined in it, they're going to get punished as well. And what's worse, if they're involved in accepting and worshiping the other gods that these, we, that these people have, they're going to be punished as well. You know, I was thinking about this because I was, I was reading an article about the call in Detroit. You guys know what I'm talking about, the call in Detroit? It, it's a, it was a thing that was done on November 11th by Lou Engel, who's part of the International House of Prayer, the other IHOP in Kansas City. And I have a number of friends and, and even some relatives that are involved uh, there at, at IHOP in Kansas City. And I went to, I went to a, a, a similar thing called The Call back in D.C. back a decade ago. And what it is is a time of fasting, a time of prayer, a time of worship, um, repentance before the Lord, a, just a wonderful thing. And, um, but it, it caught a lot of attention because a lot of people are saying how it's, it's, it's like hate speech, you know. It, it, he, he specifically, Lou Engel talks about uh, Islam. He talks about the need to witness, evangelize to the Muslims in, our, in the community and so forth. And so this became kind of a hot topic. And there amidst 30,000 people that attended at Ford Field in Detroit, there were 150 protesters, according to USA Today, 150 protesters outside uh, protesting this event. And you can guess what side the, the media was on here. And they began focusing on the 150 protesters. And uh, among them were, you know, pro-choice activists, uh, women's rights. I don't know why women's rights activists were there, but they were there. And, um, but what really surprised me, there was a, uh, at least one Catholic priest, at least one Methodist minister, at least one Baptist pastor that was out there protesting as well. And it talked about how they, they did not like this intolerant speech, this intolerance. So I was thinking about uh, the, the event I went to in D.C. Here's a picture of it back uh, a decade ago and what it was all about. It was about repentance. And I remember praying for the Holy Spirit to rain down uh, on America 
in some way. And I, you know, you, you pray for these things. You don't know how it's going to look, how it's going to work out. And I remember praying for the leaders in Congress and in the White House and, and praying that God would move. I remember repenting for my sins, uh, fasting, all of these things that were involved with it. And it wasn't hate speech at all. And then I thought back to a time and I said, when was that? What? I know it was a decade ago. When was that? It was on September 2nd, 2000, that we were there in front of the mall, on the mall, in front of the Capitol, praying that God would change our hearts. One year, nine days later, our world was turned upside down. We experienced the greatest tragedy on, travesty on American soil. Now, you may say, Justin, are you saying that God judged America on September 11th? Is that what you're trying to say? You're saying that God whispered in the ears of uh, extremist Muslim terrorists to fly planes and buildings and kill innocent people. I'm saying he didn't have to. That we were gonna that that they were gonna do it anyway. And I wonder. I just wonder. Did God move His hand of mercy from us and and and, and moved His hand that would protect us? I was in Spain at the time. I was living in Spain at the time. And, um, and it was just such a, a crazy event to watch and unfold. And I remember the weeks afterwards hearing about the churches that were packed with many people coming inside to try to hear what the Lord was saying. Maybe repenting, I don't know. Maybe wondering where God was on September 11th. But I do remember watching some news channels like Larry King. I remember he had on a variety of, of people from various faiths. And the question was, where was God on September 11th? Where was God on September 11th? Uh, Anne Graham Lutz was asked this question. She is, the, she is the daughter of Billy Graham. And she was asked this question. Here was her response. For several years now, America, in a sense, have shaken their fist at God and said, God, we want you out of our schools, our government, our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of our national and political life, our public life, removing his hand of blessing and protection. It sounds a lot like what we just read in Judges chapter 10, in Romans chapter 1. It's a, it's a startling reminder that sometimes God gives us exactly what it is that we want. You know, we have a response as Christians. We, we do have a response. Uh, the, the book of Judges is about ordinary men and, and women taking a response to the evil that's going on in their society. And it's a reminder that God can use anybody. So what is our response? Well, first of all, I understand that we live in a, a, a society that has a variety of cultures and has a variety of religions. And quite frankly, I, I'm, I'm glad we have a First Amendment because not only does it protect the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus, but it protects me as a Christian. I can practice my religious freedom. I, can, I, I don't have to worry about like what Bryce and Erica have to worry about. I have religious freedom. So then how do I understand this? How am I supposed to embrace these other religions? How do I live in this pluralistic society as a believer? Well, I think sometimes we confuse the Constitution with Scripture. We embrace the First Amendment and suddenly think that's the authority of Scripture. That's not the authority of Scripture. I don't think that when, when God returns and that there may be judgment, and we spent, we spent a good bit of time in talking of Revelation. In Revelation, I believe it was chapter 18, wondering if one of those cities, Babylon, 
who had committed adultery with all the other nations, was a, was a merchant city, if that was New York City. We wonder these things. These are, these are tough questions to wrestle with. But, but the point is, is that when God rains down judgment, saying, well, we were just adhering to the First Amendment, I don't think is going to fly with the Lord. He is going to take his vengeance on those who practice false religion. And the thing that scares me is not that, that we live in a society that embraces uh, various religious faiths and has a diverse cultural um, scene. What scares me is that leaders in churches are saying that we should just back off and there is no place to witness to these people. There is no place to talk about the love of Jesus because that's intolerance. We don't want to change people from being whatever religious they are, whether it's a-religious or atheistic or Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu. The reality is that God hates idolatry. He hates sin. He hates it so much that he gave his only son. He sacrificed his only son so that we could have life with him, a life change with him. You know, and just thinking about this, it, I, I'm all about uh, you know, tolerance to a degree, but it's, it's actually intolerant if we, if we stand by and do nothing, right? If we've learned anything from this debacle that's in Penn State that's been going on, is that those who stand idly by, there's, there's a whole lot of judgment for them as well. Sharing your faith, sharing your, the gospel of Jesus is the most loving thing you could possibly do. Sharing the love of Jesus is the most loving thing that you could possibly do. I was listening to a, a, uh, to a bunch of pastors talk, and one guy was saying that when he's asked the question, what, what do you do? And he responds, I'm a pastor. He says, he says now you know you're going to have the talk. We're going to have the talk, whether you have it now or later, about Jesus. I'm going to give you the talk. Would you like it now? Would you like it later? Right? <laughs> Being vocal about, you know, I understand too about sharing our faith at all times and if necessary, use words. But also there's a place of sharing the gospel by using words, of expressing very explicitly the love and desire of Jesus. Yes, it is up to, the, it is their decision. We're not here to twist people's arms. We're not here uh, to tear down mosques or Buddhist temples or anything like that. We're here to live peaceably. We are here to love other people. But among that love, is the necessity to share the gospel, the message, the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. New Hope Chapel.